welcome to episode 30 of Expected Value, the podcast that takes you inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media, and this week's episode is a companion piece of sorts to our previous show with U.S. men's national team coach Greg Berhalter, so you'll want to check that one out as well. This week's guest is Tyler Heaps, U.S. Soccer's Director of Sporting Analytics. Tyler and his team work with all the national teams from the senior level down through the youth ranks, using data and analytics to improve everything from the high level of team selection to the details of penalty kicks. And I think a lot of what Tyler has to say about process and learning and listening is relevant for anyone working in sports or with data. In our conversation, Tyler will talk about what he and the analytics team do for U.S. soccer, how they're handling work during the COVID-19 pandemic, his reactions to a few things Greg Berhalter said in our previous episode, factoring league quality into analysis, dealing with the problem of sample size, keys to working and communicating with non-analytics types and so many different teams and coaches, how he watches the game, what's interesting about player tracking data, his role in France with the World Cup winning U.S. women last summer, tips for breaking into the sports analytics field, and his favorite stadium in England. Then True Media's Albert Larcata will join me to react and wrap things up. Now, without further ado, here's the Expected Value Conversation with U.S. Soccer's Tyler Heaps. We're joined now on Expected Value by Tyler Heaps, Director of Sporting Analytics for U.S. Soccer. Tyler, welcome to the show. We'll get into the details about what you do and how you do it. Let's start first just from a high level. Broadly speaking, what do you do as Director of Sporting Analytics for U.S. Soccer? First off, thanks for having me, Paul. Um, it's always a pleasure to chat. You bet. At U.S. Soccer, I'm the Director of Sporting Analytics. So what that essentially means is I oversee data and video analysis within the Federation. Um, and then in regards to that, it's also the research and innovation from a sport performance standpoint. So we have 22 teams in the Federation, youth and senior, as well as para um, and beach and futsal. So overseeing and supporting the technical staffs and on all of their analysis. Um, and then also trying to look at what technologies obviously we're utilizing and how we can make their lives more efficient as well as using, using objective information to, uh, to support in decision-making. So your role is obviously very different than a club analyst role, which has much more of a cycle of match review, match prep, player recruitment in the, during the windows and things like that. So what are you doing, I guess, even specifically like right now, obviously, U.S. isn't playing games, hasn't played for a few months, has a few months until they're really getting going at, at pretty much any level. So what's your what are you up to during this kind of pandemic time that's a lot different for everybody? It's It's been an interesting one. I think the largest thing, obviously, the uncertainty in the world right now, It's it's been challenging at times. Everybody, I think, wants to get back on the field. Um, and while clubs and you start to see clubs safely getting back on the field, it's that's kind of our biggest forefront. But it also has been a, a, a really positive time, I think, for our group in particular. Um, one, our entire team is available and they've been able to support coaches. And I think that when you get into the traveling schedule of what our group does, you're always on the road. And sometimes you don't have a chance to really stop and think about the bigger picture and what some of these bigger picture projects are that you want to work on. So it's allowed us to really connect with the Federation um, in regards to of collaboration. So working with talent identification and working with coach education and being able to automate some of those processes so that whenever we are back into camps, we can focus more of our time on providing insights and less on uh, data cleaning and data hygiene. So, um, and then obviously with the clubs back in their environments, obviously the NWSL tournament going on, the MLS going on, as well as the Bundesliga and Premier League back, we are constantly supporting our staffs who are either there on the ground and or 
um, when they're watching our players and scouting our players at, um, at the end of the weekend. So it's been a, a good opportunity for us to stay heavily involved and it's been a really busy time, but it's also been a bit unique in that we haven't, we don't know what our next opponent is um, mm-hmm. on the other side. And so that has obviously allowed us a bit of time to focus on some of the bigger picture stuff and less so on who is that next opponent and how are we going to play against them. So we had Greg Berhalter on our previous episode. I know you listened to that show. Any reactions in particular to anything that Greg said on that podcast? Yeah, I think for anybody to listen to it, and even myself, the level of detail him and his staff go into, I think, is is next level. Um, they want um, every single thing they can possibly get on that game, and whether that means watching the game back, or it also means obviously utilizing data to either support and or ask further questions about some of the stuff that an opponent and or ourselves may be doing. Um, so I think it's interesting to hear a, a head coach talk in that regards. I think around the world, you may not see everybody talk in that detail, especially when we start talking about data. So yeah. that just, um, I think, further shows that that Greg is, is interested in this stuff. He's been great to work with. And I think that the questions he asks, I think, are the right ones. And that for our group is, is really important and also has allowed us to really try to expand how we listen to him and also how we can support in some of those decisions. You have an example of maybe the process of him coming to you with a question. So he, he comes to you, then what do you and your team kind of take from there and, and how do you process what he asks you? I'll give a specific example in regards to a, a specific player. So obviously playing against Canada um, in the first and second game were vastly different games. And, and mm-hmm. one of the questions obviously we're asking a lot about is a player who's I think getting a lot of buzz right now is Alfonso Davies. So trying to look at data to figure out what his tendencies are on the ball and whether that that be when he was playing up front against us um, in a front two in the game in Toronto or when he was playing as a wingback in Orlando. So there's questions that he's coming to us and saying, hey, what are his tendencies? Is he likely to come inside? What will we do if we don't pressure him? What will we do if we pressure him? Um, So trying to look at some of the uh, data as well as um, the video that go along with that to get an understanding of of what he's trying to do uh, is probably a, a decent example of that. Greg referenced uh, league quality and the complications, I guess, of factoring that in. You're trying to figure out uh, from a national team standpoint, is this guy doing well in this league, as good as this guy doing just okay in this league, et cetera. How do you factor league quality into that analysis as it comes to kind of building a player pool, putting a team together? I think it's an interesting one. And it's something I've actually thought quite a bit about in the last six to 12 months. Obviously, our setup, uh, particularly on the men's side, the women's side for us is a bit easier, obviously, with everyone domestically playing in the NWSL. So Mm -hmm. an apples to apples comparison makes that a lot easier from our standpoint. Obviously, you still need to worry about uh, style of play and things like that. But at least from a league standpoint, we're sorted. On the men's side, it's challenging because for a few different reasons. One, a lot of our players, um, especially this younger age group, are playing either in youth setups um, where data isn't necessarily regularly available. So in the U19 Bundesliga, where we've got a lot of guys that are on the fringe of breaking into the first team or on the bench of the first team, we don't have the data to allow us uh, to do some of that stuff. And so I think the more I think about it too, the more challenging question for me is how do you, how do we start looking at uh, style of play differences? And I think that we can then take everyone in the MLS. And, and even if we know what the MLS and Bundesliga, what the coefficients are, et cetera, based on obviously prior transfers or so forth, we still need to take into consideration style of play because a team like Schalke mm-hmm. is going to play a whole lot different than a team like Red Bull. But also the players that are playing on those teams are going to be asked to do different things when they're in our system. So it's always trying to provide that context, I think, to Greg and his staff and everybody internal on in that even if we have a perfect model and a perfect algorithm that let us, lets us figure out what the differences are between those leagues, 
we still need to be really cautious of that and provide the context of players may not be asked to do exactly what we want to ask them to do when they come in in our environment. Um, and so it's taking every single data point and every single model that we build um, with a bit of context and always providing video on that to make sure that, hey, is he being asked to play high and wide or is he at, being asked to be a fullback that plays inside? Uh, because those are obviously going to have extremely different outputs when we start talking about a, a quantitative point of view. Any tricks to kind of figuring that out from a positional standpoint or is it just a matter of kind of what you said of context? You know, if I'm, if I'm trying to figure out if, you know, whatever, we'll just say Weston McKinney. Uh, how he's going to do at this position, even though he's playing eight different spots for Schalke this year. Any tricks to it? Or is it just a matter of you know being as detailed as you can and explicit as you can with the data that you have? I think it's really challenging. Uh, I think there are a few ways around it. I think from a, from a level of if you're looking at a very direct team, um, let's take Red Bull, for example, um, and you're looking at a guy like Tyler Adams when he was playing for Red Bull. If we want mm-hmm. Tyler to be more of an advanced position, you can start looking at obviously his club environment and looking at his usage rate within that team. So is he somebody that's getting utilized a lot in the attacking third? Because if he is, then he may translate more of if a team does have more of the ball, is he still going to get utilized more in that position? So trying to look at how teams are utilizing their players, but also how significant they are within that environment, I think is really important. Weston is another good example, right? If he's playing as an eight or a 10, how often is he arriving in the penalty box or how often is he getting touches in the penalty box? as opposed to when he's a six, how often is he involved in the buildup in defensive third or middle third or so forth? Yeah. Yeah. That, that kind of leads me right to the question of sample size that we talked about with Greg. How do you deal with that? Cause I mean, you have, you know, a dozen games a year or whatever from a national team standpoint with different player pools against different opponents, different conditions, different things at stake. Like every single game is almost a unique data point in some ways. How do you uh, factor that in as you're trying to analyze whether it's, you know, what the U S is doing, what an opponent is doing, or even players coming in from clubs? Again, from an international standpoint, that's probably one of our biggest challenges and how much we're different from the club environment is there's so much uncertainty in our schedule. Um, so whether obviously it's a friendly or whether it's a World Cup qualifier, et cetera, I think for us, when we get to the point of a, an actual competition, that to us is like a huge sigh of relief because one, mm-hmm. you have consistency finally in lineups. Um, you have the ability to have a set of games over an extended period of time. But when we're talking about one-off friendlies, Sample size is a huge issue. So often in the international game, when we're preparing for opponent, one, we're trying to look very closely at games that matter. And and game selection is a huge thing for for us as analysts. So we're trying to look at games where whether a team is a similar quality of us, whether a team may set up in a similar way in terms of attacking or defending. So that I think is a challenging piece from us is trying to to choose the right games to analyze. Um, And that comes first and foremost. And then it's uh, the ability, obviously, like I said, when you get to a major competition, there's a whole lot um, more at stake. And it's also there's a lot more sample size to be involved. Um, One of the things, obviously, in the Women's World Cup that we ran into is that um, from the women's side, every team that we prepared for played differently against us in the knockout. Um, We expected uh, Spain to set up in a different way because they played a different way in the group stage. And all of a sudden now they came out and sagged their nine against us and played their two wingers higher. So that is another thing that I think that in the analysis space often gets overlooked is you could prepare for a team at an international level the whole time, and then all of a sudden you get to play them, and they do something completely different. Like Mexico, for example, in the 2018 World Cup, right? If right. Germany was analyzing them from CONCACAF, they would say, okay, they're going to come out and press us and things like that, and then all of a sudden they're sitting in a low block and catching them on the counter. So mm-hmm. that, I think, is a really difficult piece in the international game, and it's something that there's no perfect answer to, and it's got to just constantly be, again, when I go back to the word context, you've got to constantly take into consideration 
what the environment is, what the solution is, et cetera. How do you guys translate analytics between levels? I'm thinking kind of in the US academies, professionals, youth teams, senior teams. It seems like a Herculean task and also one that seems kind of doable when you have if you have enough time and data. How do you just attack that, figuring out how things and players are going to move between different levels within the national team programs? The biggest difficulty there um, and something that we've uh, luckily gotten support from the Federation is obviously investment because Mm -hmm. it's possible to get data on your youth teams and your women's teams and your DA, et cetera. Um, But a lot of that is investment and it's investment from internal that because obviously they're not there may not be other clients out there that want all the same information for us. So luckily, from a federation standpoint, we've gotten investment and we do all of our YNT games. So we're able to see what people what players look like in our YNT environment compared to what they look like in the development academy compared to what they look like in the USL. And I think when you start getting that holistic picture, it allows you to see quite a bit of involvement in terms of obviously what their attacking output may look like between environments, but also how those environments may compare to each other and what is the right environment for that player. And again, on the women's side, something that obviously in the lead up to the World Cup, we push data providers to cover any and every women's international game possible. And maybe yeah. that means us trying to find a YouTube stream of a random game qualifier that we just needed to get done. Because again, when you have the ability to, to have accurate data on a large sample size, you can start to see the differences and things like that. So that was something that we pushed heavily for and luckily got some backing. But it is obviously a difficult task when you start looking at youth environments um, like U19 Bundesliga, for example. It's very tough when we have a lot of players playing in there to actually get the same coverage as we may have in the USL or something like that. For your group, what are some of the keys to because you're, you're working with all these different teams, coaches, there's lots of turnover in players and coaches we talked about. So what are your keys to integrating yourselves with them? So I, maybe if someone new comes in, like how do you uh, relate to them? Just kind of explain the setup. Just what are those keys to communicating with them kind of from a broad overview perspective with all the change that is inevitable within a federation? Yeah, I actually spin that. I look at that as a huge positive. Mm-hmm. So I look at it as a positive is that you get a lot of different perspectives and every coach and every manager isn't going to think the same way. They're not going to, they're not going to play the same way. So in my unique position, I've had the opportunity now to work with a ton of different staff and a ton of really smart people um, tactically um, and so forth. So I look at that as one, the biggest thing for us when somebody new comes in is you have to listen because us as, as analysis and an analytics group is, we can't just throw random stuff at people and, and say, hey, this is what we have. It's more listening to them, understanding their language, understanding their style, and then trying to fit our models and, and our analysis based on that. So every single coach may present differently to the team. They may want an opposition scout a little bit different. So for us, it's being able to set up in a way that we can be flexible in that regards, but also to have federation standards in place where there's not an ability to obviously get new information in, right? Some things we right. stand by as a federation and say, hey, we're going to show you every single whatever, build up from goalkeeper, build up from midfield. But then it's working with them to understand what those nuances are and then learning from them. And if they had something in their past environment that they really liked and stuck with, how can we integrate that and then hopefully help out our other coaches that we're working with? Any other keys in general in communicating with, I'll just say non-analytics types or people who may not be as familiar with the data as you are? The biggest thing for, for me, and I think I, I tell our group this a lot, is just building trust. Um, mm-hmm. Building trust with the coaches, again, goes back to listening to them, um, making it feel like not only are you listening to them, but you're trying to adapt your ways to, to how they see the game. Um, and that's not always agreeing with them. It's also using data and objective information to ask questions in regards to that. So it's always trying to adjust our findings to fit their game models and et cetera. 
Um, and then the first step, I think, if you have somebody that isn't, let's say, fond of data, showing them what efficiency can do, because data doesn't always necessarily mean a large spreadsheet. Data can mean finding video clips really quickly. Yep. Uh, and so showing them that to start with, I think, is really important. And it also starts to help to build that trust to have further conversations. And if they're starting to ask for video clips and you can obviously provide the last 10 games very quickly, how can you now start to incorporate some of that the more in-depth concepts uh, and things like that? What about visually? Any uh, visual tips or tricks or things that you find particularly helpful, whether it's a, a type of visualization or just something that tends to work really well for you guys? Uh, again, I think it just goes back to simplicity. I think Greg mentioned that in your podcast before, but mm-hmm. make it simple um, for, and, and easy to understand. Uh, what you can do is obviously you can lose coaches or players or et cetera very quickly with more in-depth things. So the more that you can make it where your points are trying to stick out, I think it's really interesting. You start seeing that whether it's the Sounders conference, et cetera, I think there was a good presentation on this, annotating yeah. certain things, making call-outs. And I think that's what us as an, as an analysis group have to do a lot. When we're preparing for an upcoming opponent. We could have 20 different visualizations, charts, et cetera, that we use but it's about annotating what we see in that information that may be useful and then applying video to it. Because again, the coach's ability to see that actually happen and to show that it matches the eye test is very important. So to try to constantly be able to articulate that from our side is something that we strive to do. Um, And I think we do well here in the Federation. What's potentially interesting to you about player tracking data as we get, we're starting to get more and more, you know, MLS has a deal with second spectrum and such this season. What's interesting to you as we all kind of start diving into this and figuring out, cause I know it's been like the next frontier for a few years and now we're starting to get there. So what kind of piques your interest right off the bat from the player tracking stats? I'll say a couple of things. I think one, I think it's, it's arrived on the club scene. Um, the international scene is a little bit different. Yeah. I think I, again, I've thought about this a lot, especially during quarantine, um, trying to figure out obviously how long-term we implement that. We're obviously a traveling circus. We're never playing in a home <laughs> state, et cetera. The MLS deal helps us drastically in that now, obviously there's a player tracking system installed in every single stadium, but when we go to MetLife or any other stadium, right. that isn't always the case. And especially when we go down to Honduras or, or Thailand, we're not going to be able to bring a player <laughs> tracking system and set it up. But again, broadcast tracking now is starting to come into play. I think right. from our standpoint, from an opposition scout, that I think is a long-term solution and something obviously we're looking to to invest heavily in as we start to continue here. Because at the end of the day, the ability to know what's going on off the ball provides just way more context. Yep. Um, and so you're starting to look at space. You're starting to look at very easily when I talk about finding video clips, you can very easily find whenever you're overloaded or find similar situations. There's a lot of really good stuff that's been presented and posted online about uh, some of that stuff and how mm-hmm. you can use tracking data to say, hey, I want every clip that looks like that. That to me is really exciting because from an analyst standpoint, we spend a lot of time still trying to dig for some of that stuff. Yeah. Um, when you're looking every time the nine checks, but they may not get the ball. That still is very manual when you're using event data. So um, just the efficiency and what that what tracking data can do. And then obviously it opens a whole new ball game in terms of set pieces. When you start looking at set piece runs and what you can consider success, is it space creation? Is it anything else? So I think that to me is really exciting, but from an international standpoint, I think we're still a long way from tracking data from really arriving. And I think that one, we had the ability to utilize it at, in France at the women's world cup. And I think we did a lot of really good stuff with it and it made us exciting. But then when you go back to your, to your everyday environment and your friendlies and things like that, you don't have those resources at your disposal. So let's talk about the world cup last summer. What you were on the ground in France with the the women's team the whole time. What 
was your general role uh, with the U.S. that summer? So myself and, and A.J. Barnell, who is the analyst, uh, the full-time analyst, uh, performance analyst for the women's team, we were both there. Um, again, our main task is supporting the coaches and any and everything from a technical scouting side, et cetera. So assisting in obviously our scouts that we had on the ground as well to make sure that our processes were in place, that we got all the information coming in. Um, AJ and I spent a, a ton of time in the lead up to the World Cup building out what team profiles look like from a data standpoint to kind of get what the DNA looked like. A, a lot of obviously consolidating our clips and looking at us as a team, strengths versus weaknesses. And that was, again, through data and video to try to, um, as we're, we had a lot of time to train before that, obviously, in our lead up. So trying to make sure we're working on the right things and that trainings were obviously well utilized and things like that. So uh, and then in live in game, it was obviously one of us is is up in the booth working with sending down clips and information from the top and working with our coaches to understand what we need to change live in game. And so it was overseeing that environment, too. And I think if you asked our coaching staff, I think we did we did a really good job and our processes were in line and obviously a lot of stress and involvement in that in that uh, type of tournament. But uh, I think it ended up turning out well, looking back at it to pull on that thread of sending stuff down to the coaches. So that's you or, or, or one of your people are in the booth, you see something, you're able to clip it and get it straight down to their iPad. And that's when you see the coaches huddling on the sideline, looking at a tablet. That's basically the the process there and what you're able to do. Yeah, exactly. So there's obviously some things that we know we want to see. And so that's a discussion beforehand and communication, I think is huge between the analysis and the coaching department, but understanding what we may want to see from a, from a pregame standpoint. And then also we have assistant coaches up with us as well. So if something happens over and over again and seems to be a trend, how can we, one, get that and communicate it down to the coaching staff? And then also at halftime, right? So the ability to really go into the locker room, plug in, plug in and be able to see a situation that may be a strength or may be a weakness and how we want to adjust at halftime has been something that we've made huge strides in in the last year and a half. Um, and I think our coaches are completely bought into it to the standpoint where if for some, whatever reason, we, there's not the infrastructure to do it, um, they're upset. And for that, that means that we're obviously utilizing it in a good way and we're able to, uh, make impact in that regard. What about a shootouts or, or penalties and, you know, in the group stage, that's one of the maybe lowest hanging fruit or most tangible things that, uh, it seems like analysis helps with what is what's the process like that and how do the players respond to it if you hand them hey here's a sheet of tendencies or, or data or whatever so what is that like getting ready for those things yeah i'm just glad that we had penalties in the world cup because the amount <laughs> of time that that uh aj and, and obviously our entire staff here put into penalties before that was insane and our goalkeeper coach graham abel was somebody who harped on this for a long time and it, it's amazing how much time not only did we practice them from that standpoint um, but also the amount of detail we went into. So we have searched probably every single the way, every single language for the word penalty on Twitter to try to find <laughs> a historical video. Obviously, that's first and foremost. From our self standpoint, um, we did a historical penalty analysis leading up to the World Cup where we plotted every penalty in our database and almost challenged our players to eliminate the goalkeeper. So we looked historically at areas in the goal that Obviously, you are more likely to score or essentially no goalies have ever saved. We showed that to the players. We overlaid it um, over their video of, of them taking penalties in games. And it's reassuring to hear them talk about that. And whenever they come back after a training session or after a game and say, hey, that penalty was in the green, you know that they're obviously paying attention to that and they're really focusing on that. Um, but it's also the details of looking at, obviously, historical penalties of walk-ups and routines and things like that. 
And then from a preparation standpoint, we know exactly where if, a, if an opposition player has taken a penalty and that game was recorded, we probably had the video of it. And we also had a diagram that you see, obviously, on some of these broadcasts of last five or last 10 penalties. And mm-hmm. it was reassuring, obviously, that in the England game, Steph Houghton hit that exact same penalty in the FA Cup earlier in the year for City. So to see that, to have that, and then to obviously get the reassurance from the players of a listener coming up and obviously thanking uh, us as an analyst group after the game, because again, we were as prepared as we possibly could have been for something like that to happen. Any other favorite memory, whether it's analysis related or just experience related from last summer in France? The game in France uh, or in Paris against France was something like I think I've never experienced before. I've been to a lot of games in my life. Um, that was just a bit different, obviously working at one thing, but hearing them sing the anthem, but then the ability, I think, one, how well we played in that game and executed the game plan, and a lot went into that. But then just to see the, the sigh of relief, obviously. But then off after that, we knew we weren't done yet. So the ability then to go to Lyon and play against two other European teams on European soils was Um, Those last three games, while a lot of work went into it, a lot of sleepless nights, I I think the preparation for those and then the execution was was something that uh, really sticks with me and something that I I think that myself and our group can be really proud of. A couple other questions before we get into your career path a little bit. You touched on this earlier when maybe data is suggesting one thing and it doesn't necessarily match what you think or what your eye test says or a coach's eye test says. So what what do you do when those two things conflict, when the numbers are suggesting this and your eye test says something different? How do you kind of work to resolve those things? I think that one, it could not mean that the data is wrong. Um, and, and I think that one way that our group looks at things is we're there to ask questions and ask additional questions. Um, but it also could mean there's something wrong with the model or, or something like that. So it's always about evaluating and, and adjusting and becoming better. Um, so it may mean that we are actually overemphasizing something that we may not want to overemphasize, for example, that we didn't think about. Um, or our sequencing framework, we're trying to look at things a bit differently. So it's about always adjusting and evaluating, um, but it's also about using that data to ask questions. And if we can't find video to support it or trying to find the video that does support that um, is really important. And that I think is part of our role as an analyst is being able to find that information, ask the right questions, and then figure out how we're going to implement that in our workflow. How do you watch a game? If, if you're sitting down to watch, I mean, it could be anything from, you know, a North London Derby this past weekend to a game a U.S. player is playing over the club level to a, a previous national team game. Just how do you watch a game? If you just sit down and watch kind of how are your wheels turning inside your head as, as you watch the game unfold? One, I think that's changed drastically in the last couple of years. Obviously, I've been now with the Federation for almost five years. And I would say from a younger age, you're always watching what's happening on the ball. You're waiting for mm-hmm. the next step over or a guy to scoop somebody or something like that. But now I think it's, it is very much different. One, in the conversations that we're involved in um, internally and you hear some of these coaches talk, now your brain is obviously thinking about that. So it's about, okay, where are the overloads happening? How are teams building pressure? How are teams building out of the back? That stuff becomes more and more important. And actually, it's opened up my mind a little bit to how I watch games. Um, And you start to understand, okay, what do you think they're trying to do here? Or what do you think they're trying to solve? Um, And it's been really interesting. And now every time I watch, whether it be Tottenham play or so forth, you've got a fandom, but you also want to try to understand what them as a team were told to do. And I think that's just kind of the analyst brain spinning. And how do you think about data? How does that come into it? Is it something that maybe you come to later? Like Greg said, when he's watching a game, the data is really not entering his mind until afterwards. How do you, you're obviously coming at it from a different angle. How does the data factor into as you watch games? 
Yeah, I think from like when we're scouting an, an opponent and then we're watching our team play them, one, you want to be able to see some of the stuff that you told the coaches, I think. That's really important. Yeah. If they're creating all their chances from countering from a low block, you'd hope that or something like that was happening in the game. So um, that's, I would say, from an opponent standpoint. And then when I'm watching even a game as a fan, I, I do like to look at some of the information after of how teams created chances, where they were winning the ball back, et cetera. Because, again, when your mind's spinning and you start trying to look at some of that stuff visually – does the data actually support that or, or was I thinking way wrong? And I think that's some of the um, point of just trying to be a better analyst is you're constantly yep. trying to watch different teams play um, and you're trying to make yourself just, you're trying to learn. Um, and, and every coach is playing differently. I think the game is evolving so much. Um, people are being tactically flexible. You look at something as simple as goal kicks, right? Before you got players taking goal kicks again, because they're whatever, they're rolling the ball out and all of a sudden now you get them depressed in a different way. So that stuff is, is really important. And I think that whether it's I look at it before, I look at it after, you're always trying to say, okay, is this actually telling me what I want to see? Let's talk your career path a little bit. So Division Three Augsburg, where you played up in Minnesota, to Ceridian, to the U.S. Soccer Federation. What was that decade or so of just kind of figuring out what you want to do, where you want to be, and then ending up with the Federation? What was that path like for you? Looking back, I was really lucky and fortunate, I think is probably the best way to put it. Um, I was a math and computer science major. I always wanted to do something in sports. Every time I had a school project or something like that, I always tried to go down that route. But again, I also knew that I needed to get a job after college. And so I went into finance. But one thing that I tried to do is still stay extremely involved in the game. So I was coaching at a, at a university. I was coaching uh, pre-academy kids. I was doing live stats for Minnesota United uh, when they were in NASL. I was still trying to play a little bit. Um, so just trying to stay heavily involved in the game so that when an opportunity happened to come up, I was aware of obviously the situation, but could also use that as kind of a, a standing stone of like, hey, this I want to be involved. I've shown I want to be involved, et cetera. So Ceridian helped me drastically in terms of co my coding aspect and that background, mm -hmm. obviously investing in me as a person from that regard. Um, and then came across a job on LinkedIn uh, at U.S. Soccer. I think one, the preparation and being prepared for that interview um, was really important for me, but being able to stand behind um, and really show that I was passionate about this area helped me. But again, it wouldn't have happened if I didn't get really lucky and really fortunate. Yeah. And where did, so where did soccer data come in? I mean, obviously at the, the college and the lower levels a decade ago, there wasn't much data at all except what was manually tracked. So how did that kind of creep into your life professionally? I think back for me as a young age, my brother and I both, we would get up in the morning and go into the sports section and we would read basic box scores all day. Uh, yep. We wanted to see, obviously, how many three-pointers they were taking um, and, and so forth. And I think that's where the data aspect started for me. Obviously, when I even was in college, there was such a less availability of even something as simple as event data or some of these football reference. I mean, there's some great resources now that are available available that weren't. And like I said, I, I did some live statistics for the NASL and Minnesota United. That was very basic self-collection. I think that's when I started to get really like, oh, this is something that I think is really interesting. Obviously, you're starting, even when a game gets over, you're looking at what the possession is. You're looking at what the shots are. Um, and then I, I didn't really have the opportunity to really start digging deep into event data or whatever or the more in-depth stuff until I got within the Federation because it's such a big investment in that regard. Um, but I do think what some of these companies have done and, and made available is a huge plus for anybody that is looking to get into the field. What other tips would you give someone? I know I'm sure you, like me, get questions a lot. Hey, I'm interested in sports analytics. I want to get in the field. What, what do I need to do? Blah, blah, blah. What are things that you uh, point someone looking to get into the field or transition into sports analytics? 
again, I think one, I got fortunate, but one thing I think I did well and, and what I would say to people that are interested is embed yourself into the game or the sport that you're interested in. I think it's really important to one, you're constantly learning again. I mean, I learned a ton just coaching nine through 12 year olds. I coached a ton more coaching at a university, being able to embed yourself into that sport because those conversations are going to come down the line and you're going to have to make more and more uh, connections down the line. And so the more that you can be involved in that, I think is really important. Whether it's data or not, I still think it's important to coach and to understand tactically and so forth what's going on. And then creating relationships is obviously huge. Um, and in doing creating relationships, I, one thing I, I try, I've tried to reach out or at least respond to a lot of people that have reached out to me during this time is be prepared for that conversation because you never know what's going to come out of it. So yeah. whether that you know what's going on on Twitter in terms of what bloggers are doing or whether you know what's going on or went on um, in a past event. I think that whenever you do get the opportunity to talk to people in the space, being prepared and understanding of what's going on is extremely important so that you can ask the right questions there. And you're not asking, again, really basic ones that may be answered in a hundred different places. All right. We'd like to wrap things up with our playing favorites segment, ripping through a number of your favorites. So we'll start quite simply. What is your favorite number and why? Uh, my favorite number is probably eight. Uh, I am a massive Clint Dempsey fan. Um, I, I wore eight. Um, when I got to college, when I played. Um, and it's just something, again, I've got so much respect for him and what he did for soccer, not only in this country, but also whenever he was overseas. So that would probably be my favorite number. Favorite athlete as a kid for you? Again, back to, I probably got every single Clint Dempsey jersey from his time growing <laughs> up, whether it be Fulham or Tottenham or Seattle or every U.S. jersey. Um, I also was a huge Kobe Bryant fan. Again, just playing in the backyard all the time with my brother and watching that Lakers team as I was growing up was something that obviously stuck with me and just the way he played the game. And similar, I think, to Clint Dempsey, right? The passion that those guys show and the ability to change games is something that stuck with me growing up. And I was at a perfect age for it. I think it definitely just helped me grow competitively as a person. Nice. And, and another number eight for you as well, at yeah. least for part of his career. So I know you've been to a lot of different stadiums, soccer stadiums around the world for U.S. games and a lot in England in particular, more from a fan standpoint. Do you have a favorite stadium that you've been to in England? Um, I think I got to say the original White Hart Lane. Um, I've been there a couple of times. It was something that was like unlike anything else I think I've been to. Um, and actually, one of my other favorites in the Premier League is Bournemouth. I think Vitality Stadium, the way it's set up, how small and condensed it is, but also the passion and kind of the family community. Um, I had an opportunity to go to a game there a few years back, and it was something just the whole town kind of gets up for the game. And it's something that it's not as big, obviously, as the old Traffords and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But it does have kind of a special feel to it. And favorite game that you've attended in England and all your trips over there? This answer is even better after yesterday, but I had the opportunity in February of 2018 to go to the North London Derby at Wembley. There was 83,000 people there. It's when Kane scored the winner. It was 1-0, but just, I mean, unlike anything else I've ever been to, one, obviously you follow Tottenham and, and you watch all these games on TV, but the opportunity to be in a derby like that and to see the away fans and just the passion of everybody in there, the emotion on the face, um, being in the bars beforehand. It's, it's unlike anything I think I've ever been to in the U.S. Very cool. And finally, a favorite how did I get here moment, meaning, you know, a moment in your career where you kind of just look around, shake your head and you're like, I'm, I'm very blessed, fortunate to be here. And this is pretty cool. Uh, pretty much every day. I'm going to say that. <laughs> However, one that really sticks out to me is we had the opportunity before France to go to Tottenham's training ground. Um, to to train we were there for 10 days 
one, that setup over there, but also they were obviously preparing for the Champions League final. Uh, Mauricio came over and spoke with our staff. So one standing there and obviously chatting with him, they invited us to training sessions. So going out the next day um, and literally the day before they flew to Madrid, obviously we're watching Tottenham train. So that was, again, kind of like a full circle moment when I'm sitting in numerical analysis class my junior year of college. Never did I think <laughs> I would have an opportunity like that. But that moment and then also the, the locker room in France is something obviously I'll never forget. The ability to, one, you've spent 49 or 50 days on the road. There's been a lot of stressful moments, but to see obviously it all come full circle and um, to be with that group and how special they were, I think was something that looking back is something I'll never forget. Very cool. Good stories to end with. So Tyler Heaps, Director of Sporting Analytics for U.S. Soccer. Thanks for joining us here on Expected Value. Thanks, Paul. Back in the True Media Studios, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks again to Tyler Heaps, U.S. Soccer's Director of Sporting Analytics, for joining us on the show. You can follow him on Twitter at TJ Heaps. Check out our show notes for links to other presentations and interviews Tyler has done the last couple of years. I'm joined now by True Media Senior Director Albert Larcada, who's also worked with Tyler for a few years as part of our ProVision product and deal with U.S. Soccer. Albert, takeaways from our conversation? Yeah, I think my biggest takeaway was there towards the end, um, you asked some, something to the effect of what advice do you have for you know young people or anyone trying to break into the sports analytics world. And his answer was unique. You see a lot of these articles or you know Twitter posts or threads or whatever with different things you should try to do, you know, learn SQL, learn R, things like that. But his answer of actually becoming a coach, even I, I think he mentioned he coached youth from like nine to 12 year olds. And then in college, he did a little coaching and how much that actually helped him in the job he has now mm -hmm. because he kind of experienced what the future coaches that he now deals with go through on a smaller scale, obviously. But right. he, he's, he actually had experience with that, which sort of made him better at his job now. It makes a ton of sense. Really interesting to me. And Again, it's not something you hear often in those how should I get into sports analytics answers, but it makes a ton of sense. It's from both getting hired. It's it's a nice way to show your A, you're really into the sport, but B, you know, you can talk the talk with the coaches because you've done that really sort of thoughtful answer. It reminded me kind of how and why I had a lot of success working with talent at ESPN, working with media here at True Media. Because before I joined that, I worked on radio. You know, I called a lot of high school games. I did sports talk shows, obviously at an infinitely lower level than, you know, Mike and Mike at ESPN or something like that. But it's a lot of the same skills. And yeah, it helps you speak the language. You just think a little bit differently. So I thought that was a good point. And he had some other good points about, you know, getting jobs, just as simple as be prepared for your interviews, knowing the industry that you're in and, and the sort of literature or work that's out there from an analytics perspective, things that are relatively straightforward. Just speaking for me, like I didn't know a lot about those things or hadn't thought about them early on in my career as I went through some interviews. And it's just something you kind of pick up on with experience. So hearing those things, I think was helpful too. just hammer at home ways as you're trying to break in, you know, just be ready for your interview. Think about how you would approach the job know what's been done so you're you know speaking not two or three years behind and things like that so yeah good stuff from tyler i thought on the uh, how to get a job and how to work your way into the industry front right i also liked what he said about national teams have less need for league adjustments when looking at players compared to club teams uh, obviously if you're a premier league club you have to figure out how well an mls players game might transfer to your league and there's lots of coefficients and weights to help with that 
if you're a national team, as Tyler said, the talent and performance relative to the league can be just as important. And it kind of reminded me of almost any professional draft here in the U.S. You know, the NFL and NBA will they draft FCS players or D2, D3 players. Um, Mike Trout came from New Jersey, which is a low-profile baseball state. So you see these players from smaller leagues, smaller schools, smaller places. They can obviously play, and figuring out the fit isn't easy. Uh, but he just Tyler kind of highlighted it's a different problem for these national teams to solve compared to what club teams are doing. All right. Thanks, Albert. And thanks again to Tyler Heaps for joining us on the show. Another reminder to check out our previous episode with U.S. men's national team head coach Greg Berhalter, who provides more insight on how he and his staff use data in their prep process. And there are plenty of other soccer episodes in our archives, including Seattle Sounders director of soccer analytics, Ravi Ramaneni and soccer writer Mike Goodman. While you're there in the archives, please rate, review the show on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend about the show too. All that helps us continue to grow. On behalf of Albert Larcata and everyone here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. (laughs) 